Well, Summit Church at all of our campuses, I've got good news, bad news, good news for you. So let's start with the good news. Good news is tickets went on, were up for uh, sale. We don't charge anything for them, but they went, they were, they were available uh, on Monday at noon. And in the space of 19 minutes, 15,000 tickets were all claimed, which is really good news. Bad news is I know that some of you were not able to get tickets during that time. And some of you are especially frustrated because uh, Deepak makes us go through the Ticketmaster um, website to do that. And Ticketmaster site crashed right around noon. Uh, it was not our site, it was theirs. And uh, that led to a lot of people that were trying to get tickets in the right time and they weren't able to get any. And I know how frustrating that must have been. Uh, so that is the bad news. Um, the good news coming after the bad news is our team has been working with Deepak all week long just to try to address some of these things. And they have graciously agreed to let us um, ticket our team's dress rehearsal, which will take place on Saturday, December 22nd at 7 p.m. Now, if you are familiar with how a dress rehearsal works, um, it is intended to look and to sound and to feel exactly like one of the other normal services. All right, so everything will be just like, like it is in the actual, you know, actual show, but it's just that every once in a while we might stop and yell at each other. You just need to be prepared for that. So as long as you can handle that, um, we're going to ticket that. They were, uh, it took a little negotiation, but they're gonna do it. We're going to release tickets for that, okay? So we're adding one more service, think of it that way. Um, on December 22nd at 7 p.m., we're going to release those tickets on Wednesday, December 12th at noon. So I want you to write that down. In fact, let's all say that together, okay? Wednesday, December 12th at noon is when those final tickets will go available. But we're waiting till Wednesday to do it. That way, some of you, if you're like, hey, I got people I want to invite, you can actually get commitments from those people, you know, that confirmation they're going to come so you know exactly how many tickets to get. Um, I'm really grateful that Deepak worked with us on that and was able to do that. Um, so hopefully you will be able to take advantage of that. To note, just so we're clear, there's no childcare that is available during that service. Kids, of course, are welcome. They'll just need their own ticket and they will need to sit in there uh, with you. We don't have childcare the way we will at the other services, okay? Um, so if you're still looking for tickets, that is one option for you this Wednesday at noon to get some for the 22nd. I will say also that if you have extra tickets that you are not going to be using, let me say this as graciously and humbly and forcefully as I can, please, 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 pretty please go to Christmas at Deepak.com for information there on how you can turn back in tickets that you have available, or if you're looking for tickets, you can always check there, or you can even exchange them. Um, and uh, that's a site that you'll find very valuable here in the next few days. Um, and um, we're also, by the way, uh, Deepak, first time ever, is going to let us live stream the ones on the 24th. So uh, there'll be a live stream. If you just can't get there, you can... Uh, the service on the 24th. You can check out at christmasatdeepak.com. All right. Uh, it's going to be an amazing weekend by God's grace uh, there uh, when we do that. Um, thousands of people um, are going to hear the gospel, many of them for the first time, like happens every year at Christmas. So I hope that you will bring your faith and your prayer into that. And let's see an awesome, awesome weekend. Amen. Amen. Um, how about a little bit more enthusiastic? Amen. All right, Revelation 3, if you got your Bible. Um, if you got your Bibles, uh, we are going to get into week two of the most unusual Christmas series that many of you ever have heard. I assure you it is a Christmas series. Um, Revelation 3, I have a very unusual question for you, and I promise you I am not trying to be childish or to be shocking, but uh, just go with me here for a minute. How many of you would say that, relatively speaking, you have a weak stomach? Raise your hand. You guys, I got a weak stomach, all right? Uh, if so, if you're in that category, what kinds of things trigger that weak stomach? 
You know, it makes sense that if you eat something bad, it makes sense that your body would react to that by trying to purge it out of your stomach. But it doesn't make as much sense that, you know, you, your body has that reaction to any other number of things that go on as well, especially if you have a weak stomach. For example, you, for example I know that some of you are afraid um, that I will sing again in this service because you say last week when you sang, I threw up a little bit in my mouth. And so that makes me, um, some, of you, um, uh, some of you have that reaction when you get really nervous. I've known people who are like that. In fact, if I were to right now look out at the audience and just point at some of you and say, I want you to come up here and share a word of testimony and pray. Your first impulse would be that little feeling in your stomach like I'm about to lose my lunch. Uh, some people have that reaction when they're very sad or upset. Um, at the gym that I work out at, I've known people who vomited because they just got really exhausted. Uh, sometimes you're you know, working out with somebody that's new and I'm like, that dude's not gonna make it. I just need to make sure I stay in front of that guy and not behind him. Um, of course, a lot of us have this reaction when we encounter something really disgusting. When you grab that milk carton out of the refrigerator that you're not quite sure how long it's been in there and you feel the lumps slide down your throat as you start to drink, you have that reaction. I always thought that I had a very strong stomach, relatively speaking, but then I had four babies and the requisite diaper duty that goes along with that. And uh, there's just all kinds of sights and smells that go along with that experience. I would go in there and I would think, how did that cute little baby produce that? Uh, one time my wife left town and I had to call a friend over to rescue me from a runaway diaper. And I was like, has this kid not had a bowel movement in six weeks? I mean, it was one of those where you just bypass the baby wipes and you hold them up in the shower and just, in fact, I think we fixed it by just eventually taking her outside and just hosing her down, uh, throw away the, uh, the outfit and everything. Here's the point. Here's the point. When something is so offensive to you that it makes you want to vomit, that is very serious business. So if Jesus says something makes him feel this way, then we would be wise to be very close attention to it. And that is exactly what he does in Revelation 3. What do you think it is? What is it that you do you think makes Jesus feel that way when he looks at somebody? What is, is it Christians that are, that, that, that are too political or maybe the Christians who are political in support of the wrong things? Maybe it's Christians who don't give, uh, maybe Christians who come late to church every week. Maybe that's what makes Jesus want to vomit, makes me want to vomit. Uh, how, about Christians who, um, how about Christians who always adapt whatever uh, you know, is popular in the culture and try to make it you know, Jesus-like? I saw a t-shirt not long ago that said, you who, you who Jesus died for, you should pay attention to him. And I thought, really, is that necessary uh, or see? CSI, you know, the show Christ Saves Individuals. And I was just like, I'm just not sure how pleasing Jesus feels about that. Um, what is it that makes Jesus feel that way? Right? Well, Revelation 3 is going to give you the answer that it is the lukewarm Christian. It is the lukewarm Christian. A lukewarm Christian, Jesus is going to explain to us as an oxymoron. Now, you know an oxymoron, right? Remember English class? An oxymoron is when you've got a contradictory terms that appear in conjunction right? Like jumbo shrimp would be an example, or tight slacks. Government efficiency would be a good one, probably. Airline food, one might be one. Um, adorable cat, that's self-explanatory. Or my favorite oxymoron, Microsoft works. Um, two things that don't go together in the same sentence. Well, the biggest one of all, according to Jesus, is going to be a lukewarm Christian, somebody who believes in Jesus, but does not want to follow him wholeheartedly. Revelation 2 and 3, 
is John's recording of Jesus's words to the seven churches. Uh, now these seven churches were actual churches that were in existence when John wrote these things, but scholars will tell you that they're also representative of churches of all kinds in every age. So they kind of represent all churches. Um, what we're doing this Christmas is we are looking at um, images of Jesus that are, that are given to us in Revelation. Because what I explained to you last weekend is there's no way to understand the first coming of Christ, Christmas, unless you understand the second coming. And the book of Revelation is all about the second coming of Christ. So we can learn a lot about the Jesus who came at Christmas by looking at the images that are given to us in the book of Revelation. And so in Revelation two and three, we're gonna see how Jesus feels specifically about a church that is filled with lukewarm Christians. Okay, here we go. Verse 14, Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Now angel there uh, just means messenger, a representative. Some um, scholars say that means the pastor of the church. Others say it's a literal angel who watches over the church. Some say it just represents the church, you know, the, the whole of the church. The angel of the church in Laodicea, a few things you should know about Laodicea. First, Laodicea was a city that was extraordinarily wealthy. Years before John wrote this, Laodicea had burned to the ground. Um, and uh, when it burned to the ground, it was re built from scratch by one of the wealthiest families in the Roman empire, a family named the Zenonads. Zenonads. Um, think of it like Dubai. Uh, Dubai is a city that was built from scratch with a sudden influx of money. That was Laodicea. Everything was brand new in Laodicea. Secondly, it was an important textile center. They produced this fine black wool that came from a rare breed of sheep that lived in the mountains surrounding Laodicea. Rich people came from all over the Roman empire to buy the clothes that were made in Laodicea. It was like the anthropology or the Lululemon of the ancient world. Finally, Laodicea was the medical center of the Roman empire. Those same mountains contained a lot of hot mineral springs, um, which were thought in those days to have healing qualities. So Laodicea became a medical center and a, and a number of legitimate medical cures were developed in Laodicea, essential oils and stuff like that. Um, there was a church that had been planted in Laodicea that was one of the offspring of Paul's missionary journeys. In fact, if you read the book of Colossians, uh, when we went through Colossians in the month of November, you might've noticed that at the very end, did you see this? Paul tells the Colossians, hey, make sure you share this letter, the letter of Colossians with the church in Laodicea and get the letter that I wrote to them and have it read in your church. Which of course makes us wonder like, where is this letter to the church at Laodicea? Why is it not in my Bible? Well, evidently in the sovereignty of God, God chose not to preserve it. But the point was, um, it was a church that Paul had visited. Paul had had a relationship with. This is the church that John is writing to and that Jesus is speaking to. To that church, here's what it says. Thus says the amen. Amen is a Hebrew word that means certainty. It means the end story. The one who's gonna be there when it's all said and done. The faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation, the one who is the first and the last. He was there at the beginning. He'll be there at the end. He's telling the truth here in the middle. I know your works. I know your works. I see you. And I see that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot because you are lukewarm and because you are neither hot nor cold, you make me want to vomit you out of my mouth, neither hot nor cold. 
Six miles southeast of Laodicea was the mountainous region of Hierapolis, which contained, I told you, all these boiling mineral springs that were believed to have healing power. Six miles to the northwest were the tall mountains of Colossae, out of which flowed streams of ice cold water that came from the melting snow. These two different kinds of streams flowed down into the valley where Laodicea was, and they coalesced in these stagnant ponds of tepid water that were not hot, which means they weren't good for healing or for bathing, nor were they cold, which means they weren't good for a refreshing drink. They were just lukewarm and nobody had any use for it. Hot is good, cold is good, but lukewarm, no good for anybody. I think of it like coffee. Man, I love in the morning a piping hot, triple espresso Americano. The only thing better than a triple shot of, uh, you know, Americano in the morning is in the afternoon having an ice cold salted caramel cold foam cold brew. That's the only thing that's better. Hot coffee, good. Cold coffee, awesome. But if I find a cup of coffee that's been sitting out on the counter all day and it's just room temperature, man, even the thought of drinking that makes me want to vomit. Jesus uses this image to describe his reaction to the believers at Laodicea. You are lukewarm, he says. You are characterized by neither the warm passion that fuels sacrifice, nor the awakening, refreshing of a cold shower. There's nothing distinctive about you. You feel just like the environment around you. You claim to originate from me, you claim to flow from me, but you feel and look like your environment a whole lot more than you do me. What Jesus says next is very important because it explains why they are lukewarm in his estimation. Notice it starts with the word for. Four means I'm telling you this happened because of this, all right? The reason you're lukewarm, four, you say, I'm rich. I become wealthy and I need nothing. I told you the Laodiceans were rich. Here's how rich, 61 AD. There was an earthquake in that valley where Laodicea was. There were several cities in that valley. Um, the earthquake they guessed today measured somewhere around eight and a half on the Richter scale. It destroyed every single one of the cities and the Roman Empire made federal funds, Roman funds available to rebuild every single city. Every single city took all those funds except for Laodicea. And Laodicea said, we don't need your money. We can handle this ourselves. Now, first, has that ever happened in the history of the world anywhere ever, where you just people turn down free money from the government? Well, it happened in Laodicea. And that's because Laodicea was proud. They were self-sufficient. They're like, we can handle it ourselves. That sense of self-sufficiency had seeped into the church. Laodicean Christians thought, you know, we're all right. We got this. They weren't people who cried out desperately for God that often because usually they felt like they had it all under control. He said, because of that, you don't realize that in my eyes, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind and you're naked, blind. The Laodiceans told you they were a medical center. They were most famous for this eye salve they had developed from these minerals and these mineral springs that could cure a lot of vision ailments in those days, such that people from around the Roman empire would come there to get their eyes healed. And Jesus said, the irony is that you're healing everybody else's sight, but you're blind. You're blind in the part that really counts and your eye salve can't help with that. You're naked. He says, all that, 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 those fine clothes you provide for everybody made out of this luxurious black wool, 
None of it works for you because in my eyes, you're still naked. I advise you, he says, to buy from me gold that is refined in the fire that you might actually be rich. In other words, you need a different kind of gold. There's a kind of gold that can, can fill your bank account, but it's not the kind of gold that can satisfy your soul. It's not the kind of gold that can actually change what's broken in your heart or fix your relationships. You ever notice that some of the richest people in the nation are the people whose families are in the worst possible state? And that's because gold does not change what's wrong in the human heart. Why is it that some of the richest people show the signs of being the least satisfied? That's because we need a gold that, that actually satisfies. I've always loved Isaiah 55, where the writer Isaiah says, come to the waters and come buy bread that satisfies, but your money won't do you any good because this is a bread that's not given to you um, because of how rich you are. It's a, a bread that God gives you in response to repentance and faith. This is what he is telling them. I have stuff for you and I have clothes for you. I can clothe you, but it's not the clothing you have. It's not the gold that you have in your bank account. You need, he says, white clothes. You need white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness might not be exposed. Um, white raiment. The book of Revelation says that when we stand around God's throne, we'll be clothed in spotless white raiment. Now, what's awesome is Revelation 7, 14 says, I love this. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. If you wash something with blood, is it gonna become white? No, it becomes crimson and scarlet. Yet this kind of blood has the ability to make what is dirty, it makes it clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Dark is the stain I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow I can be today. God says, that's the kind of clothes you need. You don't need clothes that impress everybody because of the label on them. You need to be clothed in my eyes and your clothing, your money cannot supply that for you. You need an ointment, he says, to spread on your eyes so that you can actually see the problem's not your physical eyes. The problem is the eyes of your soul. You love the wrong things. You evaluate things poorly and medicine can't help that. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and I knock, which is a jarring image, is it not? What's Jesus doing on the outside of his church? Even more jarring, how did they not know he's not there? How could you be in church for as long as these people were in church and not even realize that Jesus is no longer a part of it? By the way, when I grew up, um, this verse was always used to give to somebody who was not a believer, right? Hey, Jesus is standing at your heart's door. He's knocking. He wants to come in. And that is fine, by the way, as an application of this verse. There's nothing wrong with that. But the primary context of this verse is not unbelievers who are accepting Jesus into their heart. The primary context of this verse is a church that has gotten so self-sufficient and has become so comfortable and so, so lazy that Jesus is not even in the church anymore and they don't even realize it. Can you think of a better picture of believers in the American church? Again, I'm, I'm one of us, so don't, I'm, not, I'm not hating on you. But when Christians in poorer parts of the world come to the US and they visit our churches, you know, we think they come in, they just, oh, be amazed at all the, look at the great worship and man, look at all the stuff you got. Typically, at least in my experience, they're appalled by our lukewarmness, by how little we pray, by how little desperation there is in our prayers, how little we give, by how much we spend on ourselves, by, 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 by the things that we feel like we can't live without. They are appalled at how afraid we are to identify ourselves as Christians in public or how lazy we are at sharing Christ with others when some of them literally live at risk of death or imprisonment if they share Christ. 
I told you a few weeks ago about one of our church planters over in Central Asia, whose you know, little house church was stuck and it hadn't grown in six or seven months. Remember, I told you that he had them. He said, the problem is you're not sharing Christ with anybody. So he had them take out a piece of paper and write down five names of people in their lives that they knew needed Jesus. Remember, y'all looking at me like I, I didn't actually tell you the story. Write down five names of people who need Jesus. And he says, now let's go back and circle the one that is the least likely to kill you or turn you into the police if you tell them about Jesus. That's who we're gonna pray about you sharing Christ with this week. And then they come over here and they hang out with us. And we're like, yeah, I just don't wanna tell my coworkers about Jesus because it makes me and them feel weird. And they're like, I, I tell my people about Jesus and I do so under the threat of punishment or even execution. In every possible way, we mirror the Laodicean church. Now be clear on this. Lukewarm does not mean hypocritical. A hypocrite is a liar. It's somebody who's two-faced, somebody who says one thing and does another. These believers in Laodicea are actually pretty consistent. They do not feel desperate for God. And that is reflected in the lukewarmness of their obedience and in the lameness of their worship. They are, they're, they're, they're consistent. They're just not on, they have neither the warmth of passion for Jesus, nor the distinctiveness of behavior that makes them like a cold shower. Jesus says the most negative thing he could have said. He doesn't say, I'm angry with you. He doesn't say, I'm disappointed with you. He doesn't say, you can do better. You can make better choices. He says, you make me want to vomit. There is something personal and visceral about his reaction. By the way, that decision to vomit, it's usually not a conscious decision. I don't tell you about something disgusting and you say, mm, that's disgusting, I choose to vomit. Right? It's, just, it's just a reaction, right? You can't control it. Jesus says, I look at you and I want to vomit. That's how disgusting I find this. Now ask yourself, why? Why would Jesus have such a visceral response to lukewarm Christianity? Well, I have to think first, Jesus has to see it as an absolutely disrespectful response to his grace. I mean, after who Jesus claimed to be and after Jesus did what he said he did for us, how could we ever respond with lukewarm passion or boredom? There's only two reactions that really make sense to Jesus or make sense in light of who Jesus is. Worship or mockery. Those are the reactions you see in the New Testament. People either fall on their face and say, you're the Lord, or they disdain and mock him and say, you're a traitor. They either call out for his crucifixion or they fall on their faces in worship. The one reaction you never get in the New Testament is boredom. Yet that is precisely the reaction of most lukewarm Christians in America, which means the only conclusion must be that they've never really understood who Jesus is or the desperate condition that they are in without him. Hey, I've described it to you before like this. I'm like, you know, if you came home from a, you were out one afternoon, you came home and there's a guy sitting on your porch, one of your friends sitting on your porch. And he says, hey, just want you to know that while you were out shopping, while you're out today, some, a guy came by who, who, who you owed some money to, but man, don't worry about it. I paid your debt for you. And I asked you, I was like, how do you respond to that friend? The answer is, it depends on how much they paid, right? I mean, if they were like, if they're like the postman came by and you were short on a stamp, you know, you didn't have enough postage. And so I paid the extra 35 cents to, you know, get the right postage on there, right? You're gonna, you know, kind of slap your friend in the back, say, man, you're a great friend. Thanks a lot for that. But if they say to you, well, the guy that came by was from the mafia and all of your gambling debts have caught up with you. You owed nine and a half million dollars to the mafia and they were here to kill you, but don't worry about it. I paid it, right? It's not appropriate to slap them on the back and say, thank you. You fall at their feet and say, command me right? My life belongs to you now. 
in light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, a bored reaction doesn't make any sense. There's only two possible reactions. One is total worship, or the other is total mockery. You gotta make up your mind. Be hot or cold. Is he who he said he is, or did he do what he said he did? Is eternity as long as he said he is? Did he do on the cross? Did he save you from sin like he said? So Jesus, I think, reacts that way because it's just a total, a total obscuring of who he is and what he's done. The second reason I think it makes him want to vomit is it tells the rest of the world to lie about him. I mean, you see, the single biggest cause of atheism is people who claim to know God but are not distinct from any, the world in any, any way. I mean, just listen to stories of atheists. Most of them grew up in Christian homes or around Christian communities. And what happened is they got to a point where they saw that God really made no difference in everybody's lives, so they just assumed he wasn't real to begin with. Just listen to them talk. That is the single biggest cause of atheism. When we live in a way that is not distinct from the world around us, we tell a lie about who God is. Our lives, our morals, our giving, it was supposed to scream worthiness and the reality of a God. It's one of the reasons that our worship is so important in here. You realize that when we come in here to worship, we're not just singing for Jesus. He loves our singing, yes. We're also singing for each other. And we're putting the worthiness of Jesus on display. And when somebody comes in who doesn't know Jesus and they see us singing about Jesus and we got our hands in our pocket and a coffee cup in our hand or a bored look on our face, we're looking around, looking at our phone, talking to our friends, we tell them, he's not that awesome. That is our moment to put on display who he is and my worship is supposed to show his worthship. That's where we get the word worship from. I am putting his worth on display and I wanna tell everybody, this is how grateful I am for who he is. And this is how awesome I think he is. I think Jesus wants to vomit because it makes, he realizes it's the single greatest distraction people have from actually coming to faith. I uh, was stumbled onto something that um, somebody commented on this passage I wasn't expecting, um, but it was just, I thought it was amazing. It was um, from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. Listen to this. He says, he's talking about Revelation 3. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was in a time when the early Christians rejoiced at just being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. In those early days, the church was a thermostat that transformed society. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to, do, to be numerically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and the gladiator games. Oh, but things are different now. And if today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it's gonna lose its authenticity. It'll forfeit the loyalty of millions. It'll be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th, 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church is turned into outright disgust. That is what's happening right now in the church in the United States is that we have got a church that is not that distinct from the world around it. And it is causing more people to walk away from God than you would say even it is causing people to walk toward God. The irony is we keep telling ourselves, hey, we keep telling ourselves if we become more like the world, if we have, if we have as good a music as the world, and then if we are not as offensive in the morals that we preach, if we just kind of, you know, if we're, if we're like everybody else, they'll want to come in and be a part of us. But the more we become like the world, the less relevant and useful we become to anybody. It was supposed to be a community that was totally distinct. And they said, I don't understand your passion and I don't understand your morality, 
but Jesus is inside this church and Jesus is somebody that I want to know. So let's just ask, what's a lukewarm Christian look like today? I'm going to give you a list of some characteristics that I think I, I got put these together with some um, Craig Rochelle and uh, Francis Chan and did some research on it. So this is just a list that I would put out there for you and just say, here's what I think describes a lukewarm Christian. Number one, lukewarm Christians crave acceptance by people more than God. Lukewarm Christians are much more concerned about people's acceptance than they are God's acceptance. Right? So that's why when you put up a selfie, immediately every three minutes, you're checking to see how many likes you get. And if you get a lot of likes, well, then your the rest of your day is awesome. And if you don't get a lot of likes, then your you know, self-esteem, you've got to scrape up with a spatula. Or it's why, it's why when you're thinking about morality, you take your cues from the culture and not the scriptures, because you just don't want to be that different. When you think about your life, when you make your decisions, it's not that you have no thought of God. It's that your primary thought is, what is everybody else going to think about me? And God's opinion of you does not weigh nearly as much in your decision-making matrix as what other people think about you. You give weight to their opinion and you barely think about God's. That's a sign of a lukewarm Christian because you're more obsessed with what other people think than you are what God thinks. Notice, I didn't say you rejected God. You just don't think about him that much. You think about others, not him. Number two, lukewarm Christians rarely share their faith in Christ. They consider themselves Christians, sure, but they don't want to make people uncomfortable by talking about religion. It makes them feel awkward, so they rarely bring it up. I mean, the first thing you've got to say to these people, to us, is do you actually believe the gospel is true? How could you believe the gospel is, how could you believe that what Jesus said about eternity is true, that there's a heaven and a hell, and that those who come to faith in Christ will have their sins forgiven and go to heaven, and those who don't will spend eternity apart from God in hell. How could you believe that and not speak about it to people that you say that you love? Reminds me of that um, was a famous atheist out in Las Vegas, Penn Gillette. Uh, you, some of you have seen this little video. He's like, you know, some of my atheist friends are like, I, I'm mad when Christians try to convince me to be a Christian. He says, I'm mad when they don't. He said, how much would you have to hate somebody to believe that Jesus was the only way that they could go into heaven and not tell them about it? So you'd have to say, well, they don't actually believe what they believe about heaven and hell. Either that or they're just ashamed of it. And Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my father. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. I also think a lot of reasons that lukewarm Christians don't tell anybody about Jesus is they believe the gospel, but they've never felt its transforming power in their own lives. So they're not that convinced it can make a difference in somebody else's life. So they're just not that compelled to share it. They're lukewarm. Number three, lukewarm Christians rationalize their sin. Lukewarm Christians don't really hate sin. They just don't want to be thought of as bad people. So they're always asking this, watch this. They're always asking, how close can I get to sin without it actually making me a bad person? What's the line and how close can I get to it? When you ask that, that shows you that you're not being motivated by love. Not, certainly not love for Jesus. Let me prove that. Um, I love my wife, right? If I love my wife, when I take her out on a date, I'm not usually asking what is the minimum amount that I can put into this and get away with the evening. What is the cheapest possible meal I can buy this woman? How, wh what is the maximum amount of conversation? What is the minimum amount of conversation I need to have with her? Right? I, I'm never saying what is the maximum I can flirt with the waitress 
and not get in trouble with my wife. If I am motivated by love, I want to draw close to her. I want to please her. I want to delight her. When I am motivated by love for Jesus, I want to draw close to him. I'm not asking how close to sin can I get and get away with it? How close to sin can I get and avoid the curse? What I'm asking is, what can I do that delights and pleases Jesus? I just want to make him happy. I've heard it said this way, Francis Chan, lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from sin. They just want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They're not interested in developing a hatred towards sin. They love what the world loves. They don't want to go to hell. They don't want to be cursed. So they're like, Jesus, you can help save me from the penalty of the sin, but I don't know if I really want you to save me from sin. I want you to give me a fire escape out of hell and then show me how close to sin I can get and just not go there. Number four, lukewarm Christians think more about life on earth and eternity in heaven. <laughs> the apostle Paul said, Philippians 1.21, you, some of you've heard this verse, great statement. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Live as Christ means I love life. I mean, Jesus is awesome. We walk with Jesus, love Jesus, serve Jesus, enjoy Jesus, tell other people about Jesus. But you know what? If I die, man, that's an upgrade. Now, what is the attitude toward death in America, even in American churches? I don't want to die. I'd rather live to 105 and be in diapers than I would think about dying. I'm going to prolong youth as long as I possibly can. I'm going to make a bucket list. And I'm going to try to cram everything into my life that I can and not talk about death because I'm not really that convinced eternity is going to be that awesome. That's not how a real sold out Christian thinks. They think, yes, I want to enjoy life. No, I don't want to die. But you know, when I do, it's going to be an upgrade and I'm going to be with Jesus forever. Real Christians live as if eternity is just around the corner and they're not obsessed with bucket lists because they know they'll get everything that's on their bucket list times a bazillion in eternity. It's like I told you a few weeks ago, real Christians are not thinking YOLO. You only live once. Real Christians are thinking, yowf, right? You actually live forever. Not you only live once, you actually live forever. So patent pending, okay? So <laughs> number, number five, lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something. Lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something. I see it all the time. Man, some need brings you back to God. Hey, that's okay. That's fine. Man, you got a marriage that falls apart. Joblessness, divorce, some problem with your kids some major health scare and you come back and you get on fire for him and that's okay. It's all right when a need brings you back to God. But the point is, are you just trying to use God temporarily to fix something or do you realize that God is life and that the whole point of your life is just living for him? Lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something from him or, or when they feel like they're in trouble. I've heard it described before, like it's like most lukewarm Christians wanna keep God in timeout. You know, like when you put your kid in timeout to discipline your kid, it's like they're over in the corner and they got to stay away from everybody else. And then you let them out of timeout. This is what God is. It's like, so we're, we're here and we got God in timeout. He's still in the house. We don't want him gone. But then you need something. So you're like, God, come out of timeout for a little bit. Will you fix this? Okay, God, fix it. Help it. Okay, you can go back in timeout now. And the next time you need him, you go back and get him. Or the time that God gets a get out of timeout free card on his own is when you sin. And then God's like, ha ha, now I got him. I'm coming after you and I'm going to, you know, and you're like, oh no, I sinned and God's going to, I got to deal with God. And you, what do I got to do to pay God off? And you're like, I read my Bible and I pray and I go to church and you know, I'm, I'm a, God forgive me for my sins. I think that's enough, right? And then you flash the cross sign at God and God's like, oh, he goes back over in timeout. That's how you relate to God because you're not really interested in a relationship with God. You want to use God 
to get something else or you just want to avoid the curse. That's a lukewarm Christian. There's no fire or passion for Jesus. Number six, lukewarm Christians give only when it's convenient. They'll give if it makes them look good. They'll give if it makes them feel good. But they're like, don't push me. This is my stuff. I get mad when you talk about this stuff. I don't like you talking about this stuff. Talk about something else. I'm just going to skip church in November. Seems like we always do that here in November. We talk about my, I'm going to go to some other church because it's my stuff. And when you give God, you give God the leftovers, not your first and your best. Again, let me quote Francis Chan. Lukewarm Christians love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in a truly sacrificial way. You'd like to, but not if it comes at the expense of your luxuries. Lukewarm Christians are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Jesus. And you love to hear me talk about it yet you rarely, if ever, do radical things yourself. We've seen the problem with this. We saw it in the first series. God says, if it doesn't represent your first and your best, I don't want it. Malachi, book in the Old Testament, talks about a bunch of priests who gave an offering to God, but they kept the best animals, the spotless animals, the really healthy, robust animals. They kept those for themselves and gave God the, the runts, the less desirable ones. They assumed that God was pleased because, hey, they'd at least given something. Yet God, Malachi 1.8, describes their giving as evil. Not merely inadequate, but from God's point of view, evil. Because if your giving does not represent your first and your best, it's evil to God. So stop calling your complacency a busy schedule. Stop calling it bills. Stop calling it demands on your time. Stop calling it forgetfulness and call it what it is, evil. Basically saying God didn't want you to throw your lunch money in the offering plate as some kind of penance offering. It's saying that if it doesn't represent your first and your best, it's lukewarm and it makes him want to vomit. Number seven, last one, lukewarm Christians are not that much different than the rest of the world. This is kind of the linchpin of all of them. Remember the water in Laodicea was neither hot like the springs in the south nor cold like the rivers from the north. It was room temperature, indistinct. Lukewarm Christians are like that in relation to the world around them. They look the same as everybody else. They watch the same movies as everybody else. They listen to the same music as everybody else does. They use the same filthy language everybody else does. They possess the same morals as everybody else. They raise their kids like everybody else does. They prioritize what everybody around them prioritizes. They spend their money on what everybody around them spends their money on. They use their homes like everybody else around them uses theirs. They plan their retirements like everybody else does. If we've got difficulty in our marriages, we turn to divorce just as often as everybody else does. I'm not saying, by the way, that's not a complex question and I'm not trying to give a blanket judgment. Just saying that we're not that distinctive. We end up feeling more like them than we do him because we live comfortably and self-sufficiently indistinct in our passion and in our morality and in our sacrificial way of living. These are the kinds of people Jesus calls lukewarm and he says, I, makes me wanna vomit. Can I tell you why I believe I can tell you with such good accuracy what a lukewarm Christian looks like? It's because for so many seasons of my life, I have been one. Even after becoming a pastor, even after becoming a pastor, there's a tendency for me to, on a semi-regular basis, to let ministry work replace a relationship with God. So I start reading my Bible to preach. I start reading my Bible to develop things, not to love and walk with Jesus. I tell people, oh, praying for you, man, you know, believing the best about this and bless you, brother. And let's think about what God wants here, but I'm not really thinking about praying about them and I'm not thinking about God in their life. Here's a statement that I heard somebody make one time that really got a hold of me. Listen to this. 
you have become a full-time pastor and a part-time follower of Jesus. I heard one pastor say it this way. He said, the way I was doing the work of God destroyed the work of God in me. Maybe that phrase could hit some of you. You become a full-time mom and a part-time follower of Jesus. You're a full-time business person, but you're a part-time follower of Jesus. You're a full-time student, but you're a part-time follower of Jesus. Y'all, it is not a coincidence that Laodicea was the wealthiest church with the biggest, best resources, the best singers, the best facilities. They probably had the funniest preachers. They had the biggest budgets. It's no coincidence that they're the ones that are lukewarm because pride and self-sufficiency always breed lukewarm passion. Somebody that is poor and that is desperate, man, they know their need for God and they cling to him. You can no more separate them from God than you could separate a scuba diver 100 feet under the water from his oxygen tanks. It is those who are accomplished, those who are praised by the world, those who've got it together, those who are financially secure, those who feel like they're generally good people. They're the ones who grow lukewarm. They never outright deny Jesus. They just marginalize him. They fulfill their religious duties. They're good people, but their lives are not characterized by sacrifice or great ventures of faith or first generation hearing from God. Some of church, that's why we did first. It's to ask ourselves, not because we have financial need, but because we need to ask ourselves, are we listening to Jesus with red hot devotion and surrendered to do what he wants us to do now? Or have we grown comfortable in that? I, I give you another way. My wife and I are trying to apply it. I hope this doesn't freak you out. Um, just hang with me here for a minute. Uh, but I heard, I think it was John Piper um, say this a couple of years ago. And I said, Veronica, we need to start doing that. Every January, it says every January, my wife and I say, John Piper says it. My wife and I say, first week of January, God, is this the year that you want us to walk away from our church and go serve on the mission field? Go live somewhere in Southeast Asia. He says, for 40 some years now, God has answered every year that question. He said, no, not this year. He said, but we go ahead and ask it every year. I told Veronica, I'm like, this is last year was the first year. I was like, we need to start doing that. Look, and I don't I want it to freak you out, but we're going to do it first week of January. Hey, Jesus, is this a year? Because you know what? I love Summit Church. I love Raleigh. I love the Triangle. And I love my friends. I'm comfortable here. What I don't want to do is become lukewarm. Is this the year that you want us to leave? Because it's all on the altar. It's right here. I want to be here because you put me here. I want to be here because I'm obeying you by being here. I don't want to be here because I've just grown comfortable and satisfied. My challenge for you is you got to do the same thing. You got to have first generation faith. And you got to say, Jesus, I need you. I need your presence. I need to obey you this year. Well, y'all, this passage is jolting as it is. It ends with good news. I love it. Verse 19. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. He's not saying this to us because he's angry or because he hates us. He's saying it because he loves us. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I'll come into you. I'll eat with you. That's fellowship. That's intimacy. You will eat with me. The good news is he wants to come in. He wants to wake you up. You going to let him in? You say, well, what is that knocking? What's that sound like? How do you know when it's happening to you? Here's how I think about it. Three C's. The first C is consequences. Man, maybe some of you right now are struggling under the consequences of bad decisions you've made. You're being disciplined by God. 
and you made a choice, it was a bad spiritual choice, and God is waking you up. He's like, hey, I'm just trying to get your attention. Second C, circumstances. Maybe it's not anything direct you can think of a connection, but things have just kind of started to fall apart in your life. And maybe what you'll realize this weekend is God is letting that happen. Like I often say, he's putting you flat on your back so you'll finally look the right direction. Maybe it's a problem with your kids. I'll just tell you this, and I hope this doesn't freak you out either, but it's in praying for this message this week. I just had this sense that there was gonna be somebody that listened to me this weekend. Listen, that your marriage fell apart this week. And God brought you here this weekend to say, yeah, we're gonna deal with your marriage. I'm gonna deal with your marriage, but first I need to deal with you. And you need to start walking with me regardless of what your spouse does. You need to get things straight with me. And these consequences, these circumstances are Jesus knocking at your door, a health scare, financial crisis. Here's your third C, conviction. Maybe everything's just awesome in your life right now. But right now, you know, Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not where I should be. I'm on the outside of your life. I need to come in. You need to stop being lukewarm and you need to have that white hot passion of worship and you need to start caring more about what I think, what everybody else thinks. And I'm just knocking at your door. Let me have the first and the best place. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. A lukewarm Christian is an oxymoron. Doesn't make any sense. In light of who Jesus is and what he's done, only two responses, worship or mockery. You gotta choose. And if I could just add this, a lukewarm Christian is also a miserable person. It's like Charles Spurgeon said, the most miserable person in the world is a half committed Christian because he's just enough into God to be miserable in the world. And he's just enough into the world to be miserable in God. If you're gonna follow Jesus, Spurgeon said, you gotta follow him all the way because the worst thing to do is to follow him halfway because, because you're not even gonna get the joy that comes from sacrifice and the joy that comes from obedience and faith. You're not gonna feel the warmth of his pleasure. So if you're gonna be saved, be saved 100%. And if you're not gonna do it, just walk away from it. I told you a couple weeks ago, it's like trying to get in on a boat and keep a foot on the dock. That becomes a really bad decision. You got one foot on the boat, one foot on a dock, you're going to be torn asunder. You might be like, well, it's better to be in the boat. Yep, but it's better to be on the dock and no part of you in the boat than it is to be half on the boat and half on the dock. So you gotta make up your mind. You gotta decide in or out. You gotta decide I belong to Jesus and I'm going all the way with him or I'm not going at all. We serve a savior who is worth more than half-hearted devotion. We serve a savior who shed his blood to clothe us with white raiment. We serve a savior who poured himself out to give us riches. We deserve a savior who deserves the passion of worship. He deserves our first and our best. And when you realize who he is and what he's done, all you can say is what the hymn writer says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would still be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the only response that makes sense. Why don't you bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses. In just a moment, our worship teams are gonna come. They're gonna lead us. I'm gonna give you just a few seconds here, a few moments to let Jesus work on your heart. What's he saying to you? 
Is he knocking at your hard door through consequences, circumstances, or conviction? Hey, just a minute, when we stand up to sing, the point is not singing the words. Maybe some of you need to open up your heart's door and let Jesus take full control, full surrender for the first time. As others around you sing, why don't you focus on maybe even using the words of the song to open your heart up and let Jesus have full control. Lord Jesus, have your way. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.